Welcome to The Kingstonian, a podcast that profiles people who are passionate about what they do for a living, what organization they belong to, or the community they are a part of. Here is your host, Dave Cunningham. Thank you, Steve. Hello there and welcome. Our guest in this episode is celebrating a milestone birthday in January of 2022. He's been on the podcast before, but I thought it would be interesting to check back in and see what he's been doing and what he has planned going forward. The man has a lot of stories. His high school band playing to his teachers in a bar in Quebec, recording a single that sold over 3 million copies worldwide, performing solo in English in a bar in Switzerland and being invited back. Still making music, still moving forward, planning his next project. Here is our conversation with Cliff Edwards. Cliff, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Dave. Good to see you. It's been a while since you and I sat down and I thought it would be useful to do so because there are a lot of things that have happened since our last conversation, some changes with you and some changes generally, and that's where I'd like to start. I've talked to several different musicians around town, and one of the things that um, interests me is during the pandemic, so we're still effectively in the pandemic, although it's loosened up a bit. Let's go back to the beginning of the pandemic. And here you are, a guy who has spent his whole life performing. And no, you can't do that anymore while the pandemic is on. What does that do to you? It's interesting. We, I thought about this recently. Um, and more so now since it's opened up a little, as you just said. Um, when it first hit, I, I figured, well... Um, nothing's going to be happening. And so I better just lay back a little and just, you know, go with it. And however, the problem is, is that um, I'm a guy who likes to keep pushing for things and keep finding out what's going on. So I ended up trying to push forward in terms of doing shows, doing concerts, doing whatever in music that I could, uh, thinking there's going to be a future here and I want to be a part of what the future is. Rather than getting myself into a situation where I'm not doing anything, now I'm getting frustrated, I don't know what I'm going to do. And so you kind of get down. And so to avoid that, I try to somehow continue to move towards the future all the time. You know, I do shows on the Island Star. So I was talking to Hugh McKenzie, are you going to do any shows this year? You know, are you planning in? And no, we can't. Well, okay, let me know if there is going to be some, you know. The same thing at the the waterfront concerts, you know, uh, in Gananoque at Joel Stone Park, asking the town what the plan is, are we going to do any? So I'm constantly pushing at the same time, trying to um, write, trying to sort of quietly go into myself and sort of uh, write songs if I can. And I'm in the middle of writing a book and sort of taking other courses to keep myself on top of things always pushing forward, trying to do something, you know. When you talk about contacting Hugh McKenzie, who Mm -hmm. runs all the ships out of the island dock, uh, and you talk about talking to the the town of Mm Gananoque about Mm -hmm. potential concerts, I would imagine some of that is looking for a source of income for you, but I'm also thinking that there is a need there that you want to get up and and perform. Yeah, it's not, it's never been about, the income necessarily, um, of course, you know, I am concerned that I make some money. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, uh, I'm not that crazy. But um, it's about 
your brain moving. It's about your body moving. It's about you thinking about creating, basically. And I'm, I need to somehow find a reason to do things. I need to somehow create something to push something forward. Otherwise, I could find myself getting down to the point of, am I ever going to be able to do this again? Mm-hmm. And that, that scares me more than anything. <laughs> you know, am I ever going to be able to do this again? Oh, no, you know? So I'm fortunate and grateful, um, but it's my nature, you know, to just to look to the future. Let's talk a little bit about the writing. So I would assume that during the initial stages of the pandemic that you were writing because mm-hmm. you couldn't get out and perform. Right. So having performed or written music for a long time, at this particular point in your life, who is the audience that you're writing for? Me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's me. Um, I don't really know... Um, at this point in my life where there's an audience for what I do, really. I mean, I know about the shows I do that are sort of show kind of cover material. My own material, it's hard to say. Um, and I am not in a, in a solo performer, songwriter, competitive market. It's not really what I'm doing. I'm not, I'm not pushing to try and push my songs forward and all that. I sort of I've pulled back on that. I'm just doing it to create. So the joy of going into a recording studio with musicians again uh, and creating the song the way I hear it Mm -hmm. and it coming out the way I'd like it. And when we mix it and I like it and it's fine. And if I play it for other people, they like it and I pass it off to some friends and everything. That's really about it. And when I perform live, uh, I have some CDs for sale, you know. And so if I do my own music and they... They're interested enough to want to buy one. That's really about it. I'm not really in the business anymore of pushing to the point of trying to create to the point of being competitive with other writers, you know. Mm -hmm. As we came out of the pandemic, you started doing uh, something, and there's one particular area that I found really interesting, and I'd like to explore it just a little bit, and that's the porch concerts. Mm -hmm. And this was sort of unique in my mind. I know it's happened in other places, but how did this all come about and how did you go about getting the porches to play on? Well, um, interesting you should say that. uh, During the pandemic, nobody could come to hear music or see music. So my thought was, well, I'm going to bring the music to them. So we're going to bring music to people who want to hear music and can't go anywhere. So what I thought was the best thing to do, Gananoque is, is wonderful in that um, it's full of beautiful homes with beautiful porches on many, many streets, which are all walkable, you know. It's a downtown area that really is downtown in a small town idea. So what I did was I drove around and I looked for porches that would suit what I was trying to do. And then I would go up to the person who owned the house and say, I've got an idea here. Um, I'd like to do a porch concert. And they'd look at me. What are you talking about? Who I, are you? Yeah, what, <laughs> what are you doing? I said, well, and it's usually in the middle of the street, in the middle of the block, so that the whole street could hear. So I said, this is what I'd like to do. I'd like to play a porch thing here. It's no cost to you if you allow me your porch. And then I would give out flyers to every house on that street tell them the time of the show and um, and what we were doing. And so this past summer, we called it Porch Jam, and I got some funding from a service club, from uh, the Rotary Club, 
who are interested in that kind of thing and thought, that's a nice idea, you know. So we'll give you some money to do that. And there wasn't a lot of money. It was enough money. So I would pay the people enough money as I had. Mm-hmm. And we did eight porches. And all the people would come out in front of their house on lawn chairs and could hear the music all the way down both sides of the street. And then they would be at different places, you know, in different mm-hmm. streets. Um, and so they everybody came and they would... They were appreciative of the music coming to them as opposed to them having to go anywhere. And that really was the idea. And then at the end of it all, somebody said, you know, Cliff, you've got to do this again, but you got to do it at three different times because I was doing them all at 2 o'clock in the afternoon mm-hmm. on a Saturday and a Sunday over two weekends. They said, if you do it at one thirty, one, three, and 4 or whatever, we could walk to all three concerts. And I said, really? He said, yeah, we would like to do that. We would like to hear the music in all three places with all three different acts. Mm-hmm. I said, okay. So I thought about that. I thought that's a great idea. So it, it, it was a positive thing. Now, that is a time during COVID. That's, we're in a different world now. Yeah. People go to hear music now. So whether that will happen again, I hope so. But I'm not sure. It has its own little thing. Porch Jam kind of people are looking forward to mm-hmm. hearing that again. So... That's how it came about. As long as the weather cooperates. That's the other thing. <laughs> yes, the other thing. You've got to hope that the weather's going to be fine. Let's stay with uh, producing shows, because I know that's something that you do a lot of. And uh, most of the time you're doing them here in Gananoque. And uh, I don't know, I call them concept shows, where uh, you, you put together a plan. And let's use one as an example, one that you did uh, in November in... Um, at the Legion Hall in Gananoque. Mm-hmm. It was a tribute to Johnny Cash and mm-hmm. June Carter Cash, mm-hmm. and there was you and Tegan McLaren who yeah. sang the June Carter Cash parts. Right, right, right. And then you had Bernie Smith right. who played guitar and sang mm-hmm. a song or two, right. and uh, Noah St. Amand right. who was the bass player. Yeah. And this is the big stand-up bass as opposed yeah. to the electric bass. So uh, I happened to be at that particular show. It was a great show. And you go back and you look at the music of Johnny Cash. So it's very simple, very straightforward. Uh, The lyrics are lyrics typically that most can identify with and can understand. And yet, uh, decades later, this stuff is still popular. I guess um, simplicity, you said it. Um, Lyrically, uh, messages, simple music, things that people can remember. And... um, He's an iconic figure, you know. It's interesting. He has a, that great voice, as you know. Um, and his persona and his whole musical career was worldwide. And the moment you start to sing I Walk the Line, you could you don't have to sing it. You just have to play the first eight bars of the intro, and everybody knows what that is. Mm-hmm. And I play a place in Switzerland, and the people who go to this bar in Switzerland don't necessarily have a complete understanding of English. They speak Swiss German or Italian or French. The moment I started to walk the line, they're yelling at me. I walk the line, Johnny Cash, Johnny Cash. So it's, music transcends generations, some music. Mm-hmm. His is that kind of music. 
When you put together these kinds of shows, and uh, every winter you have a series of shows that you put on at the Fire Hall Theater in Gananoque, and the shows have themes. So it's either the music of John Denver or James Taylor or Linda Ronstadt, and there's a cross-section of different performers. I'm curious to know how you go about deciding whose music you're going to play. Well, um, first of all, it's a two-pronged effort, actually. Um, and the first uh, idea was as to how could I partner two people who don't ordinarily sing together, but who are in the same musical genre, uh, and who who could I use to come up with an idea? Because there are certain artists that I can sing fairly, uh, I'm fairly okay with, Kenny Rogers, John Denver, uh, some Glenn Campbell, some, you know, Johnny Cash, where I'm comfortable in singing. The big question comes, who can partner with me to offer not just that, but another kind of music that fits the concept? So one of the biggest shows we had was Kenny and Shania, Kenny Rogers and Shania Twain. They never played together. But the same people who come to hear Kenny Rogers also love Shania Twain, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, And so that's where the concept comes from. So you don't become, uh, uh, you know, you're not trying to imitate. Uh, you're not. I'm not trying to be Johnny Cash or John Denver or any of the Kenny Rogers. Uh, you you pay homage to the music, mm-hmm. and the people that I ask to join me um, on the female side are the same thing. They don't sound like those people, but they love those songs, and it doesn't matter. The people don't want you to look like or sound like they want you to respect the music and so that's the that's how the concept was born now uh, did you go about and talk to people uh, potential audience members and say who would you like to see me put together in terms of a musical or this is just something no you thought no, up off the top of your head yeah it's just something that i sit down with and i i come up with ideas that i think would work and then i create a series of shows um, called the Cabaret Music Series, and recognizing that the audience uh, that we're performing for are older in most cases, um, and that I have to res- be respectful of those audience tastes. And so I create these shows with that in mind. And strangely enough, what happens is on the Island Star uh, boat, I do some of those shows there too, and some of those shows are tour group oriented. I mean, the tour groups come to book those boats and they are mostly seniors who travel. So those shows work also for them. For them, And so that's made this whole thing have longevity. It's given me a reason to kind of continue doing them. The only thing is you kind of run out of ideas at times, you know. <laughs> Good grief. I've done 10, this will be my 10th year coming up. 10 years. Of doing these cabaret shows. And I look them all up. And I go, oh, yeah, gee, (laughs) Uh, what am I going to do now, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's a constant thing of new ideas and trying to create. Now, I don't do all the shows in the Cabaret series myself. I do maybe three out of the five that I'm in. The other two, I come up with ideas that maybe someone else would like to be interested in, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, that's what I enjoy doing as well, to offer an idea and see if they would grab onto it. And they would book the people. 
What makes these things successful, in my view, is the fact that people, A, like the music that you are singing, but B, uh, they are amazed. I'm not amazed is the wrong word, but they are impressed with the musicianship of the people who are on stage, and all of them typically are local. Yep. So you go out and you recruit musicians. To me, that would be an exercise that would be a little fraught with, okay, who am I going to book this time around without offending so-and-so? And I don't know how you handle that part of it. I've had that problem um, myself, mostly. Um, I haven't had a, a big issue with the other people on the receiving end. I've had to deal with that in my own way, um, to not offend, as you suggest, uh, that possibility. And I, I, I think... Everybody knows after this amount of time, the same people can't be in every show. Also, the same people don't want to be in every show. They've either got other bookings or it's not their kind of music they want to play. So what I do is I try to diversify enough so that people I haven't used in this show, I'm going to ask if they could be in this particular show. And what happens is because people want to play and want to sing, they usually say, yes, I'm interested in that because I like that kind of music and they learn stuff. And that's been very, I'm very grateful for that. And it's been a wonderful experience for me because I've been lucky enough to have some very talented people, as you mentioned. And we have amazing talent in this region. It's just unbelievable. A lot of the people who were in Toronto doing in the days of recording and days of performing all retired towards this area. And so they still want to play and they're still talented. And so you find them out and you go, wow. You know, I'm gonna. We're gonna ask you if you want to play, and so uh, you get some great players who just want to play the music, and mm -hmm. this is an opportunity to do it. And like I said, I'm impressed with the people that do get up on stage and perform. And sometimes it's a surprise that there are so many different people who can get up there and play tunes. Like if we go back to that Johnny Cash show for a moment and talk about Bernie Smith. Yes. So here's a guy who. It looks very effortless for him to play the guitar. Mm -hmm. He rarely, and this is a guy who, meaning me, who tried to learn how to play the bass guitar <laughs> and wasn't successful. But I'm looking at this guy. He's not even looking at where he's playing. He's, he knows where his fingers have to go and plays the songs. Mm -hmm. And it comes out great. Yeah. And even, and, and I guess I'm impressed with the fact that a group of you would take the time to rehearse something that was as tight as that particular show was. And all the shows are in that same sort of vein where it's not just getting the songs out there, it's making sure you put on a good show. Well, the the um, the combination, the key, I think, is A, everybody wants to play. So they, on their own time, can learn the tunes because I send them a show set list in advance, way in advance of what we're doing live so they can get a handle on the music long before we get to the rehearsal stage. And um, so I'm fortunate that they, they, they're so capable and so talented they can learn this stuff with no effort. Um, and then a guy like Bernie has been playing most of his life like I have. And I think he doesn't get the opportunity to play that kind of thing now as much as he was mm -hmm. and so this gives him an opportunity to play some music that he listened to and maybe played some of and so it's so natural to him all of a sudden it all comes back you know mm -hmm. and he he sounds like it you know and he plays like it however bernie 
is in a in a genre that he's really comfortable in rockabilly and country and some original stuff and some rock you know rock and roll yeah and then you might not move him into something else he might not be that might not be his wheelhouse not comfortable know? yeah you know so it's difficult but the good thing is the more i do these shows at other places the better are the tighter we become mm-hmm. and that's the one big disadvantage is that i end up doing one show of something and then where do i go with it next because i've been finishing starting it at the cabaret series and finishing it there so there's some talk now about doing some of these shows to some people who have never seen any of them yeah in other small towns yeah like, you know, Smith Falls has a theater, Trenton has a theater, Athens has a theater. So we're talking about that now in maybe even resurrecting some of the shows that they never had the chance to see because they never came to Gannonakway, you know. And Massey Hall's just been renovated. Oh. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Mr. Lightfoot is opening that place. I know, I know. You mentioned before playing this kind of music all your life. And let's talk a little bit about that. So... Uh, I'm doing a little bit of research, and I'm going back to uh, stories that I've read about you performing either solo or in bands or in groups or whatever. And uh, I want to take you back to high school. And a story that I read that you wrote, and we'll get to the memoir in a sec. But the business of uh, starting off playing music while you're in high school, and you've got a band, and I think you were the lead singer at the time, and you're playing in a club, and they kicked you out of the club. Mm -hmm. Tell that story. Well, um, you know, I was in high school, grade 10 at the time, I think, and I started to, you know, I became a fan of music um, through my father originally. And I was listening to the radio. At that time, country music was moving into rock and roll in the late 50s, you know, in the mid-50s. And I loved it. I mean, I was listening to Elvis Presley. I was listening to, you know, uh, Chuck Berry and stuff. So uh, a band had formed in high school. Um, and asked me if I could sing. So I said, yeah, I'd love to. So it was called the Stratocats. And, and suddenly we were playing as a band and there was four of us. And then I wasn't playing guitar at all. And then the guitar player, Daryl, said, you know, we could use like a rhythm guitar, you know. What, what, could you learn the guitar? And I said, yeah. So I bought a book of chords, you know, and he lent me his Gibson J45 and I started Trashing out the chords every day in my room in the house, you know. And so finally I could play rhythm guitar with the band. So we were playing high school jobs all over the place. Then there was a, a club, a bar, in a place called St. Eustache, where I was living at the time, um, asked us to play on the weekends. So we were all 16, 17 maybe, 16. <laughs> so we were playing the bar and... It was building a following. We were playing this old rockabilly stuff. And, and so we noticed that uh, some teachers were actually coming to the bar. It, it caused me some difficulties because after about the third week, I got a call from the principal of the high school to come down to the office. And he said, uh, Cliff, we got a little issue here. You're in a band, right? The Stratocats, you know, the high school band that you play here for our our dancers and stuff, yeah. You're playing in this bar in St. Eustache, uh, the Hotel St. Eustache, yeah. We got a problem with that. Number one, you're underage. And number two, the teachers are going to hear you and uh, they're drinking. 
So students who are there or you can see them drinking and you're playing and you're underage. Can you stop this now, please? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. Okay. Teachers didn't want to embarrass themselves. That's right. You, yeah. So I thought, okay, all right, I'd better just forget this. So we finished our job at that hotel <laughs> quite quickly. <laughs> Guys, we can't do this anymore. We're going to be in trouble. Several years later, you move along and you are part of the Bells. And the Bells had a, a streak going where they were very successful with a couple of different tunes that uh, reached the top of the charts. And at one particular point, you came into contact with uh, a lady named Rosalie Trombley. And for those people who may not be aware of who she was, uh, she was a music director at radio station CKLW in Windsor. And a lot of folks who uh, listened to radio would have that particular uh, station on their dial quite often. She picked the music, and she was also well-known for picking hits. And uh, the reason I mention all of this is because there is a connection with you, but it's also as we record this particular episode, we heard last night that she had passed away at the age of 82. So tell us the story of you coming into contact with Rosalie. Um. In the earlier part of our career, um, we were a nightclub act, and then we got the opportunity to record. So uh, we recorded four songs uh, at Andre Perry's basement studio in Montreal and brought it to the record company Polydor at that time, which had just opened up offices in North America, New York, Montreal. And we brought the tape to them, and they signed us and said, wow, we don't have any Canadian music. It was just as Canadian content was coming in. So the first single they released was Fly Little White Dove Fly. And we went across the country promoting it from one end of the country to the other. So we finally found ourselves with a top 10 record in Canada, written by Martin Butler, another Montreal writer, singer, songwriter. And um, so we were really running on that. Suddenly we became a recording act. And we were hired at a nightclub in Windsor called the Top Hat in January 1971. There was a blizzard, <laughs> which is not unusual <laughs> in this country in 1971 There's in January. There's always a blizzard. There's always a blizzard. <laughs> um, and so we were playing, and nobody came except a full table of people from CKLW. And Rosalie Tremblay and her boss, Alden Deal, was the manager of the station at that time, and some promotion people were there. So I sat down with them with our manager, Kevin Hunter, who was at our show, too. After we did a short show, and then we sat down with the table. And Rosalie said, Cliff, we've really done all we can with Fly Little White to Fly. I think it's run its course. You know, we it's been a hit. It's It's gone up to the top ten in Canada, and it's just been released in the States, but it's you know, it's not going to be. So what's going to be the next single? I said, I, I have no idea. <laughs> said, you mean the record company hasn't thought of it? No. He said, well, it's funny you should say that. Because, Cliff, before this show, I listened to the album last night before coming. And she says, I got a thought about that. So I said, well, what's that? She says, the song Stay A While, I think could be a hit. I said, Really? She says, yeah, I was listening to it. There's something about that song that talks to me. And 
if your record company would consider um, releasing that, we would play it. Now, CKLW was the number one station in Canada for audience because it reached all the way to Cleveland, Detroit. It had that kind of power. It's like the big eight, they used to call it. So all kinds of stations, people in America would listen to it and Canada. And so I thought, whoa. Okay, so we called the record company. The record company said, Rosalie Trombley said that they would play it if it was released as a single. Guess what our next single is going to be, Cliff? <laughs> Stay a while. She went right on it and drove that record right across North America that sold over a million copies in the United States and Canada and about three million worldwide. And those were the days when radio stations didn't tend to play just any cut off of an album. It right. had to be a single that was released. Exactly. Everybody's releasing singles of top 40 radio, right? Mm-hmm. And if you reach the top 40 in New York, WABC, CKLW, CKLG, Vancouver, Chum, Toronto, you are, you got a hit. Yeah. And to reach that, you've got to have the kind of airplay you need to get an audience big enough to warrant that kind of thing. And then the sales start, right? 45s, you know? Mm-hmm. And so she, she was a hit maker. And now, of course, there's all kinds of, since her passing, all kinds of people have been writing in, have said things about the fact that she picked their song. Mm-hmm. I think Rondi Bachman talked about these eyes on radio. Uh, Bob Seeger mentioned the fact that he wrote a song about her because she had picked a couple of his hits. So she was, she had the ears. Mm-hmm. She could hear a hit, pick a hit, and... If, with the biggest radio station in the country, of course, you'd say if she was going to go on it, your chances of getting there are pretty good. Mm-hmm. She never went on the air as an announcer. She was just the music director. Music director. Picked and, all the music. Now, we've uh, talked about a couple of different stories, and that leads me into my next uh, little section here, and that's the business of you writing a memoir. And that's something that you've sat down and started to do, and you have done it in terms of little short stories about what you've experienced, not just musical stuff, but just what your life has been like from almost day one to now. Mm-hmm. And so uh, where are we in the book? How many pages have we written well, so Well, I don't know about pages. <laughs> they're mostly chapters, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, they're triggers that I've put down over the time during the pandemic um, of things that happened to me over my lifetime. Um, And so how would these triggers start a story? So these triggers gave me a chance to start to think back as how I was feeling at the moment, what was happening to me. And each story has its own little intro and extra. They're they're self-contained stories, you know. It's short stories. Um, And even when we get into the music side, it's not about the success or not success of the band. It's about how I was feeling at the moment during these times. So it's more of a personal approach to the memoir. It isn't about the the Stratocats or about the Bells. It's about my experiences during those times. So it gives a different perspective from me and how I was feeling at the moment and what was happening to me personally. It might not have been happening to anybody else in the band. It's just what I was experiencing, you know. So I'm, I've done 15 chapters, 15 stories. Let's not call them chapters. Mm-hmm. 15 short stories. And I'm going to continue until a point comes where I think that side ends. 
And I think, Dave, to tell you the truth, it will probably be when I've stopped playing music and started another career, mm-hmm. which is what happened to me uh, when I went back to school, where you and I started to, when we, you and I met. Um, when I went to Loyalist College as a day student, when I was 43 years old. So I think I'd like to go to that point. Mm-hmm. And then if there is another book, probably not, I don't know, I might go from there to now, which has taken on a whole different route. Um, but the stories are different, and my experiences are different. And so um, we'll see. But that's what I'd like to do. You mentioned before the business of going to Switzerland, which is a place that you visit on a regular basis once a year. And you have friends that you have met there and you have performed in a club in that particular location. And uh, I can recall the story you told me about going to a particular club uh, to celebrate the birthday of an individual. And then you there was a stage there and you had your guitar. I don't know why you would be traveling with your guitar unless you figured you were going to get up on stage and do something with it. But you uh, asked the guy who owned the bar if you could get up on stage. And here you are in a country that does not speak a lot of English, uh, getting up singing in English only because you don't sing in other languages, no. I would guess. No. But a lot, like you say, a lot of the songs people recognize because they were familiar to them. Uh, but that's something that you continue to do almost every time you go there. Well, um, my partner Brigitte is Swiss, so I had the great opportunity to go and visit her family in Switzerland. And uh, her sister's husband, Peter, was having a 50th birthday party. So I do travel with a guitar particularly when I go to a place like Switzerland, you know, um, just because I want to play and if, if there is music around and so we take it in case, you know, because her family knows that I play music, you know. So we got there and her sister's husband was having a 50th birthday party and he, we were going to have the party at this club, at this bar. It's called the uh, Penny Farthing, interestingly enough. <laughs> and so... I said to Tim, I'd like to play. Can you mind if I play? So I talked to the bar owner, and he said, well, sure. Let's, we got a little, we'll create a little stage there. we got a speaker. If you're not, you can. So my, my partner's sister rented a sound system to make sure we had for the party. And then I got up and played a couple of sets. My music, mm-hmm. some Johnny Cash, some whatever. And found that a lot of people who were there were interested hearing Canadian music to them North American Canadian North American American is kind of to them you know different kind of music than they're used to listening to right yeah so um I played some Johnny Cash I played some Kenny Rogers I played my own thing some couple of bells you know I played such so they really seemed to enjoy it and the owner um the manager of the bar and the owner were there and said wow this is really good. People really like this. And would you consider coming back? So on my next trip, they had sent me an email saying, when are you coming? We'd like to have you at the bar again. So I said, really? So they had a sound system by then. So I'd show up and I'd get the bar and they would tell everybody and they'd have a big video screen with my face on it. Cliff Edwards from Canada is coming back to play, you know, and they'd, they'd fill the bar. And I'd play and I there's two things about this that really one is the Johnny Cash thing we talked about the moment I go into I walk the line everybody knows what that is 
and the Folsom Prison Blues. You know, they're the two big songs that were big in Europe, everywhere. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is, I usually end up with Country Roads. And I'm singing, and it was so warm outside, everybody was outside on picnic tables having drinks. And there was very few people in the bar. And I'm singing Country Roads to nobody. So usually as part of it, I say to the audience, okay, your turn to sing, right? So I stopped playing, and there's like five people singing. So I said, oh, well, you know, okay. So finally, a guy comes running in. He says, Cliff, everybody's singing it. We're all outside. The windows in the bar are open. We can hear every word, so don't think nobody's <laughs> singing it. And what's interesting, everybody knows that song. Mm -hmm. It's like, it doesn't matter what language you speak. They know that song. They know the you lyrics. Know? And that's yeah. the beauty of music and how it transcends every nationality. You know, One little story to end up with, and that's uh, a song that you guys made famous. And the connection with Europe has sort of blossomed into something completely different that you were probably not expecting. And that's a record producer in Italy coming to you and saying, I like that song. Can let we play with that a little bit and maybe write another verse and, and release it as a single? So that's well, an interesting story. Yeah, it's it's these are things that you you could never expect something like this happening. No. And uh, my partner's son, who is a head chef, has a friend who is a recording producer, engineer, Filippo. Uh, he has a studio in Milan in Italy, but he's, he works in Switzerland and Saint Moritz as well. So it just so happened that Ivan, who is my partner's son, was playing some of my music, and he heard Fly Little White to Fly. Well, Filippo got all excited and said, oh my goodness, this song, I love this song. Cliff, can we do something? So we had a video phone call, and he explained what he wanted to do. He said, you know, Cliff, this could be a big hit again. Uh, we haven't heard it here, but it could be a big hit. In Italy, I'd like to produce it. Um, what do you think? I said, well, yeah, it'd be fun. He said, we need another verse. So I thrashed out another verse that made it a little more reflective of today's world mm -hmm. as opposed to 1970. Um, some of the things are exactly the same, as we both know. That's a whole different discussion. Um, but um, So I put another verse in contact at the publishing company who's contacting the writers and so far, I haven't had any negative issues around that. And so the idea was I recorded my voice with a whole song here and my guitar on a separate track and my voice on a separate track. And I did a, a last verse. I did the whole thing plus the last verse. And I spoke the last verse as well as sang the last verse. So in case there might be an interesting thing of speaking it instead of singing it, who knows. So sent it over there. And so... What they're going to do is they're going to add instrumentation to it in Milan. And the plan is to release this um, in Italy first in the summer of 2022 as a summer hit. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> that would be something interesting, wouldn't it? It would be. Yeah. Just for a song to have uh, a rebirth or a revival. And now, was it ever released in Europe? No. It was never released there, so they no. don't know the song at all? No, no. So that would be interesting. Yeah. You may have to go on tour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's try that. <laughs> so start working on the wardrobe. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. 
Listen, buddy, I enjoy talking to you and love the stories and keep them coming. And I know a lot of people are looking forward to hearing you play wherever you're going to be playing. And a lot more are looking forward to that memoir when it comes out and all those other stories that you tell. Thanks for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Dave. Much appreciated. Thank you for asking me. Our thanks again to our guest, Cliff Edwards. Hope you had a great birthday. If you want to keep up with his performance dates, check out his Facebook page. This episode was recorded in person in late November 2021. The theme music for the podcast is Stasis Oasis, written and performed by Kingston musician Tim Aylesworth. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions about any of the episodes, please send a note to the Kingstonian podcast at gmail.com. For details on upcoming guests, follow us on Facebook. The Kingstonian Podcast is hosted by Dave Cunningham and produced in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Mm-hmm.